Welcome to The Track, I'm Steve Clark and in today's programme we mark the 30th anniversary of the opening of Brooklyn's Museum. Tim Morris caught up with the former head of collections John Pulford who was there right at the very beginning of the museum to talk about those early days. We also mark the 100th birthday of the speed record legend Donald Campbell with a brand new song written about him by Sophia Dady. But first we remember the band leader, motor enthusiast and trombonist Chris Barber who passed away shortly after the last edition of the track was aired with a song from his 2013 appearance in the clubhouse with the Brooklyn's All-Stars. very talented indeed and none more so than the trombone player on that track which was recorded by the Brooklyn's All-Stars in the clubhouse in 2013 Chris Barber no sooner had we broadcast the last edition of the track which featured um, the death of Tony Pitt the band's banjo player but uh, we then heard of the sad death of Chris Barber now Chris hugely influential figure on the uh, post-war jazz revival scene in the UK initially playing in a New Orleans style but he encompassed all sorts of different things from blues, skiffle, big band and even into jazz rock 
um, by introducing an electric guitarist into his band in the mid-60s. He was influential on, on pop musicians as well as jazz, um, including the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and Paul McCartney actually gave him a, an early Beatles song to cover called Cat Call. His influence was wide and varied, and uh, he was also instrumental in the British blues boom of the uh, mid-60s, and he would bring over the US musicians such as Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, Sister Rosetta Tharp, uh, to the UK and Europe. Um, it was such a rare occasion to see these artists perform in this country, but Chris uh, brought them over. But Chris was not only uh, interested in jazz and music, as you may expect, he's also uh, enjoyed motor racing. And it was an early hit uh, that he made with Lonnie Donegan, who was uh, Chris Barber's first banjo player in the band, uh, called Rock Island Line, which some of you uh, may remember. A huge hit that made a fair bit of money for Chris and enabled him to buy his first race car, uh, a Lotus Climax Mark IX. Um, he also raced other Lotuses, including Lotus Elites, and uh, in the 1960s, when the touring schedule for the band was a bit, uh, should we say, too strong, uh, he actually ran his own race team with other drivers uh, driving the Lotuses. Uh, the band also continued their association with racing by playing at many British Grand Prix over the years. Uh, Jim Clark and Mike Halewood were both fans, and he played at Ken Tyrrell's memorial service at Guildford Cathedral. Um, not only was Chris interested in racing, he had his own classic car collection as well. Um, he did like driving the Lotuses. He also had uh, Mercedes saloons, Lagondas, and a pair of 1930s LaSalles. So it was no surprise then uh, when he was quite happy to come along to Brooklands uh, to play with the Brooklands All-Stars in 2013. It was a great occasion which was marked by the director of the museum, Alan Wynne, presenting him with a framed cartoon by Salon of Billy Cotton, who was another race enthusiast who actually did drive at Brooklands. Uh, the Chris Barber Band does actually continue now, uh, but with a fellow trombonist, Bill Hunt, at the helm, so his memory uh, will carry on. John Pulford was one of the people working with the first director, Moray Barton, who helped Brooklyn's museum get off the ground in the late 1980s. Tim Morris speaks to him here about his memories of those early days. How did the, the museum come about in the first place? Yeah, well, it's, a, it's not altogether straightforward. There were quite a few enthusiasts around at the time who were interested in getting something going at the track and trying to preserve it. Um, so we weren't sort of, as a museum, the first to come along on the scene. But um, personally, I was involved because I was I strangely enough a passion for archaeology. And I got involved with my local museum in Weybridge. And I was working there as a student, um, setting up summer exhibitions in the holidays. And one year, um, the assistant curator there, Maura Barton, um, really felt that it was time that we did some honour to this place down the road. That was probably the most important uh, local and national history that had never been told. It was the, um, you know, the 
currently the headquarters of the uh, British aircraft industry and have been the world's first purpose-built motor racing circuit and an amazing history of uh, international flight and um, motorsport. She was concentrating really on the aircraft at this point. They uh, put on this exhibition called Wings Over Brooklands. It was an incredibly popular exhibition. There was, there was more um, interest and more visitors to that exhibition. About 6,000, 6,500 visitors came in a month, which is more than the museum ever had in a year. And uh, the people that were involved said, well, really, there should be a permanent museum to Brooklyn. So Moreg really was fired up by this, and she went out to British Aerospace, and yes, they were sympathetic, but they were in a, they were in a closed down, sort of a security closed site. They couldn't really have... Um, buildings given over to museums. But it just so happened that shortly afterwards, uh, they began to sell off some of their land and they were selling off the uh, original aircraft, 1930s aircraft control tower, which became the focus point for having a museum of aviation. But that really wasn't uh, working that well. Um, There were problems with access to the land and it was a bit restricted. And then suddenly the factory announced they were going to sell off 40 acres of their land. And it was the most historic 40 acres on the site. It had the old 1907 original clubhouse. It had the 1908 um, test hill, um, some original aviation buildings, uh, so the old motoring village, which was still the old sheds where um, they had given over to Barnes Wallace to do his experimental work. So it had been sort of preserved in aspect almost, this old uh, Brooklyn's site. And this was the perfect place, but the question was how to get possession of it. Well, Belmish Borough Council were interested in uh, helping to start a museum. The site was put up for sale, and a company called Gallagher uh, bought the site, bought the 40 acres, and part of the condition was that they should pledge 30 acres back as a peppercorn rent to the council um, to have a museum there. So the council initially took it on uh, to set up a museum, but they very quickly formed a museum trust. Um, they put some money into restoring the clubhouse and then pretty much um, withdrew and left it to the trust to run the site. So it really is how the uh, museum got going. But more who had been orchestrating this all along and she started to gather sort of people around her, more enthusiasts, to um, help her on the way. When was this? Was this in the, the 1970s or the well, 80s? I think a pardon, I haven't had any dates of it much. Really. No, the, the, the Wings Over Brooklyn's exhibition was in 1977. Um, it was in 1984 that uh, uh, the, the British Aerospace announced the sale of the 40 acres, 83-84, and that was when Morag was appointed coordinator. And then um, in 1987, the Brooklyn Museum Trust was formed. And I joined them in 1988 when Morag needed somebody up there to help put on displays and gather the formation of the collections together. So it actually came about then in 1987, um, but the museum didn't open to the public till 1991. That's right. Um, What was happening in the intervening years? They were uh, tricky times, really. I mean, we didn't really have very much to display when we uh, first started. There was... uh, we're very lucky in that in 1985, when the um, the Moray Barton first moved up there to start working on the site, uh, Loch Ness Wellington had been rescued from Loch Ness, and nobody really knew what to do with that. And it was all in pieces, obviously, um, uh, and that was uh, donated to the museum, which was a huge asset for the museum because it really gave something 
to talk about and we managed to get people to come in and see it which was a big um, help for us and uh, a great number of volunteers many of them drawn in from staff of the aircraft factory worked on the restoration of it and hundreds of thousands of man hours were put into restoring it and in 1987 uh, when the trust was formed at about the same time the sultan of oman donated his vc-10 his luxury vc-10 airliner which is another great asset so we had two strong exhibits of, of aircraft because there was very little else so some enthusiasts were building replica aircraft uh, but they weren't the real thing and we didn't have very much that we could really um, draw an enthusiastic um, crowd into the museum on the back of. Cars were even more hopeless because people don't donate racing cars easily. Brooklyn's racing cars are fun, worth a lot of money and people want to use them but we did manage to get some um, important ones on loan. The uh, uh, Dennis Jenkinson Tusenberg was loaned to the museum at the very early days. The fact that Dennis Jenkinson uh, was supporting us was also a great strength to the museum because he was uh, quite a hero in the motor racing world. He had helped uh, Sterling Moss win the 1955 Million Melia and was a great uh, uh, motor racing journalist who people were following all the time in Motorsport magazine. We had as the royal patron, Prince Michael, 1991-92, I believe, and he was really from then on opening something every year. Yeah, quite exciting times, I should think, in the development there. Yes. Um, looking back on it now, what do you think were the advantages of opening uh, in that period? Um, did you still have access to some of the original Brooklyn's characters at all? Oh, it was a, it was a wonderful time um, for the fact that the people were still alive, that had, many of them, that had actually raced there. Um, we used to collect the memories of people like uh, George Harvey Noble and uh, Morris Mort Goodall or Harry Clayton, who was the, one of the few drivers that actually went over the top of the banking and lived to tell the tale. Um, we could sit those three down in our newly opened bar with a bottle of whiskey on the table and leave them to talk with a microphone about their memoirs. And we you got some wonderful stories about the museum. And on the aviation side too, people that were involved in some of the pioneer aviation was still alive. I mean, not to mention Tommy Sopwith. In 1988, we had his 100th birthday party at the museum. The people, there was a chap called Bob Dicker, who was the mechanic on the Vickers Vimy, which was, of course, the first transatlantic flight, non-stop transatlantic flight in 1919. He was a mechanic on that uh, project, and he also raced motorcycles in Brooklyn. So what a wonderful person to be able to have around and talk to. Must have been really good to talk to these people that were involved with Brooklyn's in its heyday. Um, it something sadly that we can't do anymore. What were your your highlights really of those early days? It's so difficult. Every day was different. Um, every day was an adventure. Uh, so many interesting people and enthusiasts were involved. They could all come in and talk to us and bring in new objects. I mean, one day John Cobb, you know, the great record breaker and racing driver. His, um, his widow brought in the trophy that was awarded to anyone at Brooklyn's who broke the outer circuit lap record. And what a wonderful exhibit that was too in the very early years of the museum that we became the sort of centrepiece of the motor racing exhibitions. 
Over the sort of the next 30 years, really, the museum's developed considerably. What do you think about the developments that have taken place since those early days? I think it's all just a dream come true, really. I, I just, um, to look around the museum now and see, you know, signposts to Concord and signposts to the Bust Museum and and see how the site has developed. We always dreamed that it would be one day what it is, but it's, it's gone beyond that, I think, now. Um, and it's just so rewarding and, uh, and satisfying to, to have been there at the beginning. I know you've retired now from the museum, John, um, but if you hadn't retired, what, what would be on your wish list now for the museum? The last project I was involved in at the museum before I retired was the um, aircraft factory and racetrack restoration project. And the standard, the new standards that the museum saw in the creation of that project I think now needs to move on to the motoring village itself because that was our first project, the motoring village. It, it, the, the place was just a really derelict site of old motor racing sheds um, when we went in there in, in 87. I'm sure it could be done. I'm sure it, I know it's planned to be done. It would be wonderful if the, the motoring and aviation side of the museum could be brought up to the same level. I think these days, if people speak of Brooklands that perhaps don't know too much about it, they, they probably think of the motoring side more than the aviation. It depends on your background. Um, I mean, thousands of local families in the area were employed at the factory, generations from when it started in 1915, really, with the First World War, um, right through to the 1980s. The whole area was just developed around the factory, um, housing in Byfleet, Walton, Weybridge, and I think... Local people think of Brooklands as the Vickers Aircraft Factory. Still, their fathers and grandfathers work there. People in the motoring world who will think of it as a, a racing circuit and it's a mecca for people who are still interested in the history of motor racing. The part that Brooklands played in the history of aviation is huge, but people don't realise really that the Brooklands was there you know, from the very early pioneers. Um, people like Tommy Sopwith and Harry Hawker learned to fly at Brooklands. You know, the Hawker Hurricanes that really that basically won the Battle of Britain were built at Brooklands by Tommy Sopwith. You know, the, the, uh, because Vinnie was built at Brooklands, it was piloted by Brooklands-based people, built by Brooklands people. It goes all the way through the history of aviation. And Davy Rowe also sort of cut his teeth at Brooklands and had flying schools there and went on to form the uh, Avro companies. So it goes right through aviation history on a very broad spectrum. People don't know that. That's the trouble. And I think that's the message we try and get out of the museum as much as possible. Yeah, I think you're right. It's not just aviation and motoring, although it does appeal to those enthusiasts, but it's also the industrial history of the country, the social history of the country. Yes. It's all encompassed in one place that is Brooklyn's Museum. Yeah, off 
if it's driving him No one will ever know A Campbell in a speed machine Just watch him go Cause when he's got that twinkle in his eye Nothing's gonna stop him Don't even try He's on something And everybody knows Leaving us behind him I'm very pleased, too. But I reckon you've had a real good time whilst you've been over here in the States, because everybody's been so awfully kind to you, haven't they? They sure have. Well, um, we've just been out for our preliminary uh, trials, and the old boat behaved really magnificently, and we're all extremely pleased. Uh, it's now just a question of waiting for a settled spell of weather so that we complete the, the trials and possibly make the attempt uh, that we hope to on the uh, record itself. Donald Campbell would have celebrated his 100th birthday on March 23rd and that song Twinkle in His Eye by Sophia Dady um, sums up Donald and his father Malcolm Campbell when they got that little twinkle in their eye you knew that something special was going to happen and that usually meant uh, smashing a world land or water speed record between them father and son actually broke 21 world speed records an incredible achievement you also heard at the very end of that track there are a couple of little clips of donald speaking at uh, the first he was only 16 years old and he was uh, in bonneville in america with his father malcolm and malcolm campbell had just broken the 300 mile an hour barrier to claim yet another world record uh, the second clip uh, was from 1958 and by this time Donald was trying to break uh, his father's uh, water speed record and he was on Lake Coniston and uh, testing the boat at that point 
Brooklands have been celebrating uh, Donald's 100th birthday with a special event which takes place on the 25th of March. If you're listening to this on the Thursday, that's this evening. And we're featuring uh, Gina Campbell, who is Donald's daughter, and Don Wales, who's his nephew. And both of those uh, people will be recollecting uh, Donald's life and some of the personal family memories that they do have of Donald as well. Uh, We're looking forward to that event greatly and we hope to bring you some uh, clips of that event in a future edition of The Track. Meanwhile, you can buy Sophia Dady's single, Twinkle in His Eye, uh, from her website, sophiadady.com. This is not the first song that uh, Sophia has actually written about uh, Donald Campbell. Um, She released a song uh, a short while ago called Bluebird. And there is an eight-track mini-album coming out in July. And uh, we hope to catch up with Sophia prior to the release of that album. Uh, And of course, we'll be featuring uh, some more tracks from that album on the track. Brooklyn's News. Welcome to Brooklyn's, the birthplace of motor racing. The motto at Brooklyn's is always more speed and yet more. And home to one of the most formidable collections of classic cars. She's going for it now, isn't she? Or inspiring aircraft. Not many people can say they've worked on Concorde. Beautiful vintage buses. Hold tight, please. And one-of-a-kind motorbikes. We are fortunate we have one of the very few that are left. Meet the museum's merry band of dedicated volunteers. Check the oil. As they painstakingly maintain... It's going to take me about another eight or nine months to do this wing. Restore. It's working well. There's life in the old girl yet. And race these extraordinary feats of engineering. You've got life insurance, haven't you, Alan? Keeping their heritage and history alive. It's like it wants to come back to life. Oh! Mission accomplished. A new original series, Secrets of the Transport Museum, starts Tuesday the 30th of March, only on yesterday. The Secrets of the Transport Museum take a look behind the scenes at Brooklyn's Museum. You can find Yesterday TV on Freeview, Channel 26, Sky 155, Virgin 129, Freesat 159 and BT Channel 26. Don't miss it. Brooklyn's Museum remains closed at the moment, but uh, along with the government's guidance, we hope to open again on May the 19th. As always, keep an eye out on brooklandsmuseum.com for all the latest opening details. Thanks for listening.